This is episode 475 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. When we read scripture, we usually focus on the obvious, the who, what, where, and what does it say and what does it mean kind of questions. But what is often overlooked are the vital why questions. And learning to ask the why questions takes some time. It's not something that comes naturally. It's not something you're taught in seminary. It's not something we even talk about much in church. You almost have to train your brain to look beyond the obvious and force yourself to understand the why questions that come with every passage of Scripture. Not, why did God choose to put this statement in His Scripture, or why is the Song of Solomon included in the Bible? But why did Paul write this letter to the church at Philippi in the first place? What was the problem that needed to be addressed or the ministry that needed to be encouraged? And how would I feel if I was a member of that church listening to Paul's letter being read publicly for the first time? What impact would it have on me? Or what impact is it having on my life right now? So let's learn to ask the why questions of Scripture as we also learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Last week, we talked about the signs of the times, and if you remember, I shared with you uh, 10 things that we need to be focusing on as believers that all pretty much have to do with faith during the times in which we live. The first one, of course, uh, has to do with um, trust. Not to worry, just to trust. And the verse we looked at was Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And what we do is what we always do, is we come up with a theme or a message or a point that we want to make, and then we try to find a verse, or in this case is two verses, that solidify that point. In other words, it's not like we're taking the scriptures and going from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through the end. Instead, we're, well, here's something about faith and belief, and so that's something we need to look at. Oh, it's the Luke 11 passage about faith and belief. Oh, it's the Sermon on the Mount, the Matthew 6 passages about don't worry about what we eat or drink or wear or where we live. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So we have those passages that we take out, and, and what we have a tendency of doing is coming out with a point, and then finding all these scriptures to support that, or looking at a scripture and developing the point, which is what this verse talks about, and then trying to find other scriptures to support that. Nothing wrong with that. But what happens is we lose the, the history behind the verse. We lose the, the context in which it's in. We're, we're not really sure, not what Paul said, but we're not really sure why. Why did Paul make this statement in this letter to that church at the time in which he did? What was it like if you were sitting in that church and all of a sudden, Paul, who's now in prison, you get this letter coming to him from Timothy, let's say, and, and the letter's presented and the church gathers around and here's the message from our brother Paul. And we wait until the fourth chapter before he says this. Of course, back then there were no chapters and verses, but we wait until... Three-fourths of the letter is over, and then Paul makes this statement. Now, how would it impact us? What situation were we in? What situation are we in now to be able to, to glean not just what it means and what it says, but if we're going to learn to experience God's Word, 
The question is, why? Why was this particular statement said when it was? Now, we talked about experiencing God's word for the last couple of weeks, and a few of the examples that we used on Sunday have been the teachings of Jesus. And what we've been looking at is not necessarily the red print or the words that he says, because we all get fixated on those, because that's you know, the command from God and the truth of God, and we want to know exactly what that means, but the black print the filler print. And Nathaniel went over here and found his brother and they followed Jesus and, and they're like stick figures. We don't even know who these people are, or what they're going through or, or any of that. And then as we focus a little, di- a little deeper on just the surrounding text around an event in Christ's life, it becomes more real to us. Remember us doing that? It works the same way in the letters of Paul. If you'll just take the time, what we're going to do is we're going to do this live today. In other words, uh, I'm just going to kind of share it with you, and we're going to just look at some, we're basically going to read uh, the whole book of Philippians today. Luckily for you, it's just four chapters. Uh, we're going to read that, and we're going to just not, not necessarily look at what it says, which is vital importance, but we're going to look at why it was said, what's the underlying motive, what could possibly be going on, and try to place ourselves in that church at that time, listening to this letter, and, and feeling the impact that that letter would have had on our lives based on the circumstance we're facing, because then it's very easy to read these letters, these inspired, God-breathed, remember, living and active letters, uh, writings that continue to speak to us in the situations we're in right now and have them make a bigger impact in our life than just words on a page. Make sense? One of the One of the saddest things about the Christian life is it seems like for most Christians, the older they get in Christ, the less impact the word has. I've read that before. I I, I know that story. I just kind of skim through it. And even when we're reading a book about, I don't know, faith, and we're reading what the author says, and then he quotes a verse. And what we do is we're, we're, we're digesting everything the author says. And then we get to that verse and we read the first line and we recognize, oh, I know what that means. And we skim the verse and we go right back into the point the author's making. So his words, human words, some man's take on scripture becomes more interesting to us than the very words of God. And this doesn't happen to most believers when they're young in the Lord. It happens when we have a tendency of getting a little bit older, which is really, really sad. So we talked last week, we're going to cover the 10 items that we really need to focus on during the times in which we live. It'll end right about um, 1st of November. The first one, of course, is do not worry or have faith. We talked about last week of slowing down as you read the scripture, ruminating on each word, asking questions about each word. I won't go through that again. Be anxious for nothing. It doesn't say be anxious for not a lot. It doesn't say you can be anxious for a few things. It doesn't say be anxious for important things. It says be anxious for nothing, nothing. Then you stop and you think of all the things we're anxious about, all the things we worry about, all the uncertainties in life, all the, all the situations that we're going to face tomorrow that we faced yesterday and they have a tendency of, of building up so us this fear and this stress and this pressure inside of us and we just don't know what to do. I have to have the answers now and, and you're not going to get them in the Christian life. It doesn't work that way. Faith is not built on God telling you what he's going to do tomorrow. 
Faith is built on God telling you who he is and letting you rest in him. I know I've shared it with you 300 times. Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest, January 2nd. Are you asking God what he is going to do? Well, yeah, because I'm worried. I, I, I'm, 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 I'm anxious. I, I want to know what you're going to do. What are you going to do about this God? What are you going to do about that God? Are you going to answer this prayer, God? Are you going to do this? Are you asking God what he is going to do? He will never tell you. The antithesis of faith is he, if he did. God never reveals to us what he's going to do, Oswald Chambers says. He reveals to us who he is. Our faith is not in his answer. Our faith is in who he is. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. And you can, again, look at all the situations that we hold on to. Those aren't the everythings we give to him. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God, just God. And when that happens, something new supernatural happens to you. I've taken my worry and my anxiety and the pressure of the uncertainty and I've taken it off my shoulders and I placed it on his large shoulders. And he has taken this peace, this peace that he has, this, this peace knowing that he is sovereign in all things and he takes that peace and of him and he lays it upon me and it, I can't even understand it. I don't even know how this works. And my situations are still the same, but I'm not fretting anymore because I've given that to him. And in return, he's given me something far better. And the peace of God, which blows our mind, which surpasses all understanding, will guard my heart and my mind through Christ Jesus. Now that's the verse. That's the verse that we've looked at before. But what I want to do, kind of helping you in this learning this skill of kind of experiencing God's word, because when you experience it, when it becomes alive to you, when it's like you, you, you read something and it jumps out of the page and it, it interacts with you and it changes you on the inside out and, and you're just overwhelmed with it, you never keep that to yourself. You pick up the phone and you call somebody, you run in to your wife or your husband and go, man, let me, let me, let me tell you, let me tell you what I just discovered. Or like with Karen, hey, will you come back here for a second? Are you going to show me another YouTube video? No, this is great. You know, come back here. So she comes back and I show her this and you know, usually the person you're sharing it to kind of has this blank look on their face and go, well, that's nice because it hasn't impacted them. But for you, it's life and breath and power. Do you remember? And nobody can understand that but you until it happens. And every time we open God's word, if we have experiences like this, then we'll be driven to his word more so than the church is today. We want to focus on what it says and what it means. And then we decide whether or not we want to accept that or obey that. But the reality is, is once you know the whys and once you can experience yourself what these words really mean, it, it takes stick figures and puts them in 3D, if that makes sense. So we ask a couple questions. It's all we do is ask questions. Here is a statement made. What's the setting for that statement? I mean, what do we know about the church in Philippi? Uh, where was Paul when he wrote that letter? 
Well, we know that Paul was in prison at that time, which probably scared the bejeebers out of the church in Philippi. Because now it's like Billy Graham, it's like John MacArthur, it's like you know one of the big noteworthy pastors of today, this seasoned veteran is now in jail because of the faith. And if they're going to come after Billy Graham or John MacArthur or somebody like that, you and I have no shot standing up against that. They've gone after the big guy. Paul is in prison. So I'm in this church in Philippi. I'm in Greece. I was the first first church that Paul founded when he went after his Macedonian vision and, and moved over there. He wasn't there very long. The church was founded on persecution and miracles. It was, it, it, was a, it was a Gentile church. There weren't many Jews in the church at that time. As a matter of fact, there was no synagogue in that city. That's why Paul, when he usually goes to, on the Sabbath to preach in a synagogue, he went down to the river and met a couple ladies. Do you remember the story in Acts 16? So if I can understand what kind of fears they were having, that Paul told them this, then I can understand the kind of fears that I'm having, and all of a sudden I can experience maybe his peace or, or his joy or, or my joy, my joy. Every time you get on the Internet and you, turn, you click on the Facebook, you look and you see what somebody had for dinner or what their cat is doing, are some theory about crazy stuff going on in our country right now. Is it real? Is it not real? Is these things factual or not factual? Because anything can post, anybody can post anything they want right now. You turn on the news, and the news is based on cessationalism. And so what the news pretty much tells you is something negative. If you're on Fox News, it's all negative about these guys. And if you go to the other news channels, it's all negative about the Trump guys. And there's all this crazy stuff going on. And I find it amusing that an event will take place, and I'll go to Fox News, and I'll get their take on it, and then I'll go to MSNBC and get their take on it. And it's like they're from different planets. You know, and each of them has a following and each of them is trying to fill the airwaves and fill your mind with worry and doubt and fear and what's going to happen and and this is terrible and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, they didn't worry as much as we did back then because the things that happened in Rome, like Paul's imprisonment, it would take months for the church at Philippi to even find out about it. We know about it immediately. And if we're consumed with that stuff, it has a tendency of eroding your confidence in everything, including your God. So I want you to imagine that you're a member of this church at Philippi. Man, we're coming together right now. And uh, we have gotten a letter from Paul. Paul, of course, was instrumental in most of us coming to Christ. Uh, we remember how this church was started. Some of us were there with the Philippian jailer, you know, when his whole house got, got baptized. And, and some of us came to faith after that. And, and our church has grown to the point that we actually had bishops and elders that are here. But this is a hostile environment in which we live. Paul was accused and the church was accused. And we're probably still being accused of teaching things that are contrary to the Roman law, contrary to, to what Rome teaches. And therefore, we found even in the book of Acts that when that happened initially, the magic magistrates at that time took draconian measures without trial, without due process of law, and arrested these guys, beat them with rods, threw them in a dungeon, and was going to wait until they probably killed them over the next couple days. It is a fearful time to live. And we remember all that. 
We remember our fear. You know, if I, if I tell somebody I'm gonna vote for Trump, I'll lose my job. If I post something on Facebook about how I really feel about something, then all of a sudden I get flamed by everybody else. If, if, I, if I speak about Christ at work, then somehow I'm a homophobe or, or something terrible and, and nobody wants to have anything to do with me right now because pretty soon biblical teaching will be declared hate speech. And then you and I, all of us, as it's been in other countries throughout history, will have to determine whether we're true believers or not. Exciting times that we're entering into. If you have no fear. So I'm reading Paul's letter and I'm reading his words and, and I want to know what it meant to them and their situation because I can kind of relate to that in the situations we're in right now. I, I want to know what kind of impact these words made on their life because the same impact is making on their life as the impact is going to make on my life today, I hope. Or do I just read those words, be anxious for nothing, oh, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known unto God. Uh, do, do you do that? Well, I pray sometimes. I pray three or four minutes a day, but I don't have time for that. Why? Because I'm too busy trying to manipulate and play whack-a-mole with my life here, trying to take care of all my problems that I don't take the time to pray and lay my prayers and supplications and my requests at his feet. And do you feel his peace? Not in a long time. I'm just, I'm just like this on the inside. Our whole nation's like this on the inside. We take all sorts of drugs to, to make us feel better, or we go out and self-medicate. I'm really stressed right now, so let's go have a dozen donuts at Krispy Kreme or something of that nature. I mean, it's just the life in which we live. Why is that? Why is that? Now, before we start, I want you to look at Acts chapter 16, and I want to show you, you're familiar with this, the history of this church. Verse number 12 they come to Philippi. Paul has had this Macedonian vision. He now crosses over, probably has Luke with him. This is the we passages in the book of Matthew here. Verse 13 says, on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside because there was no synagogue. There was no Jewish presence here. The Jewish population was so low in this Gentile city that obviously they didn't even have an assembly. So Paul goes by and he sees a group of women that were having a prayer meeting and he goes and he explains to these women whatever audience Paul had about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, now a certain woman named Lydia heard us she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when, she, and when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come to my house and say, and so she persuaded us. So after the prayer meeting, Paul begins to preach. And there's this lady there, there's this demonic lady there who her masters were making a lot of money from, from telling the future and doing these kind of strange supernatural things. And she was coming up behind Paul and she was annoying him. Verse number 17 says, this girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation, which is a true statement but it was probably spoken in a derisive way. And she did this for many days, it says in verse 18. So Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said, to the, said in the spirit, 
uh, to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. And the master was irritated. Now his source of income was over. Now I want you to watch the words that the Holy Spirit uses here to describe the treatment that Paul received. They're not gentle words. They're not even passive words. These are words that, that have an emotion and, a, and a, a force behind them. Verse 19, when our master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul. Hey, can you, Paul, would you come with us? And we got a meeting at one o'clock with the magistrate. No, they seized him. They grabbed him. They accosted him and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace to the authorities. And then they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. And then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates politely asked them to remove their garments so they could administer the punishment. No, they tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. This stick whipping through the air, making that sound before it cracks on their back. We have been charged. We have been accused. It's not even a formal setting. I don't have an offense attorney. I haven't even been able to present my case that you guys have already decided what we did is wrong, and you're already exacting upon us an unjust punishment. And when they had laid many stripes on them, here's this other strong word, they threw them into the prison. That escorted them, threw them into the prison, commanded the jailer to keep them securely. And you know the rest of the story. At midnight, there was a, Paul and Silas were singing hymns and praise songs to the Lord. Excuse me? What is that? Well, that's being anxious for nothing. Because I'm in prison and I'm beat. I have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring, but they've already done this to me because of an accusation from a mob that's happening in our cities all over the United States right now. This uncontrollable mob raises up. They drag us. They rip our clothes off. They punish us for their bloodlust. And now we're thrown in jail. What are they going to do to us tomorrow? But we're worried about nothing because we're resting and trusting in the Lord. I'm anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we're letting our requests be known unto God. And this peace of God that nobody can understand allows us to sing hymns and praise songs to him in prison, chained, in probably the worst conditions you can imagine. Big earthquake, all the chains fall off, the doors bust open, all the prisoners can go free. God, what a great miracle it was. And the Philippian jailer wakes up, realizes he will die now because the prisoners are escaping, draws his sword to kill himself. Paul stops him. We're still all here. What must I do to be saved? Paul tells him, verse number 21 or 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You're in your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And that very same night, salvation took place. He washed them off. And the next day, the magistrates realized they had made a mistake. They wanted to, to 
uh, rush them or, or usher them out of the city quietly. Paul, of course, says, you're Roman citizens. You've done something that is unlawful. They came and apologized, and they moved on. Church was founded, not very secure, but the church grew. There is, when this church was founded, there is a propensity from the magistrates at that time to punish based on mob rule. And it doesn't matter who you are. There's no due process of law. It's just the way it is. So Paul now is writing this letter back to the church at Philippi. And the church at Philippi is obviously struggling with some things. They're obviously uh, a church that's very close to Paul. They're actually doing some things that are well and doing well that Paul commends them on. And so what we can learn from this before we look at the letter is the fact that Paul was writing this in prison, in prison. So let's say, for example, that um, um, it became illegal to meet in church like this. And so the authorities came and they dragged me out and, uh, and threw me in jail. And so I've been in jail for a couple of weeks. Do you still meet? Who would want to stand up and do the preaching? Because you're next. You're next. Would we be afraid? Well, let's just do this on the internet. Let's not anybody know that they're really Christians. Would you go and you rip the fish symbol off the back of your car? I mean, Paul's in jail in Rome. Bad situation. And you know, they don't know what's going to happen. Whatever happened to him is probably going to happen to us. And so therefore, there's this fear. There's always this fear for narcissistic, opulent Americans that our religious life is going to interfere with our secular life. Our religious life is going to cost me something money-wise, business-wise, house-wise in this world. And so therefore, I don't want to be too committed to Christ because I want to make my way in this world because that's where in our, our culture, and our society, self-worth comes from. That's scary. Paul, prison, what are we going to do? And the emperor then is worse than what Biden will be if he gets elected. It was Nero, Nero, crazy man. This was in AD 61, just three years later is when he burnt Rome, you know, on the, on the 18th and 19th of July. And he burned it and blamed it to, on the Christians. And, and Paul, just a couple years later, was, was martyred and Peter was martyred. And as bad as we think our government is, Nero Nero was emperor. He was the power to be at that time. Not only that, the church was primarily made up of Gentiles, so they didn't have this long history of their faithfulness to God from the Old Testament, and, and they were beginning to suffer persecution. And because of that, the church was beginning to split. It was beginning to have factions. And the factions were not on those people who love the Lord and don't love the Lord, the factions were those people who says, we're going to just tell the Lord Jesus, we're going to tell about the Lord Jesus Christ, come what may. And those who say, calm down, guys, calm down. You know, I, I just got a house and I run a business and I just bought this new car and I don't want to be so heavenly minded that I know earthly good, whatever that means. And the factions beginning, we can see beginning to happen in the church of Philippi between those that were on fire for the Lord and those who weren't. So turn to, turn to Philippians. 
And as we look at this, what I want you to see is not necessarily what Paul says, but I want you to ask some questions about why he's making this statement. You know, if I were writing letters to my kids at different points and times in their life, a lot of times those letters, what I would say in those letters would be predicated on what they were struggling with or what, the, you know, what encouragement they needed during those times in their lives. And we find the same thing as we look at this. So I'm going to read this and just ask some questions. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ. That's voluntary slaves, doulosses of Jesus Christ. To all, everyone, I'm including everybody here, to all the saints, the called out ones, the holy ones in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Wow, so the church had grown to the point they had a biblical leadership structure here. We had elders, we had bishops, we had deacons, however you want to call that. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you as I'm laying on the slab in the cold, dank, dark prison. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine making request for you with all joy. Paul, you're obviously concerned about this church because you said in every prayer, every prayer that you're praying, you're praying for the church in Philippi and you're making certain requests of the church at Philippi. It's kind of like if, um, if there was a crisis going on in my family and let's say that the uh, Karen had some medical issues, and it was life-threatening. Every time I prayed, that's the first thing on my mind. I'd be thinking about that and praying about that and making requests about that. It's not something that someone said, oh, would you pray for Bob and his job situation? Yeah, yeah I'll do that, but it doesn't really impact me that closely, so I'm probably going to forget to do that. But in every prayer, every remembrance, he makes requests for them with joy. With joy, I'm excited about being able to pray for you because my God is big and my God is sovereign. So what are the requests? And what are you joyful about? Well, I'm joyful for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day in Acts chapter 16 until now. And I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Why would you say that? Why is that included in here? I mean, if Paul had no doubt that they would finish strong and finish well, that there was no doubting on their part, there was no backsliding, there was no counting the cost and, and finding yourself short, if there was no issue that needed to be addressed with that, why would he say that? Listen, I'm praying for you, and I know it doesn't look this way, but I'm confident I'm confident that what God has begun in your heart, even though I'm somewhat discouraged, and we'll find out he talks about that of running the race in vain, I'm somewhat discouraged, and maybe you're giving in to fear, and maybe you're giving in to, to panic situations, that nevertheless, I'm confident that God and his sovereignty, who begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Because maybe I'm worried about you. Maybe that's what prompted that statement. Just as it is right for me to think this of all of you, because I have you in my heart, 
inasmuch as both in my chains and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. Of grace. Do you really love us, Paul? Uh, Do you really pray for us that much? For God is my witness. How greatly I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray. Not only that, but there's another request I have for you. What? Now think about that. Whatever they were struggling with is what you would request. If someone was sick, and I have another request for you, that the illness, the coronavirus that has gone through and sickened many of the people in your church, then I I pray that they'll get well and they'll get healthy and God will protect the rest of them from that so you can stand strong as one man in the faith contending for the gospel. See, a, a situation would prompt a prayer request. If we ask the questions, why? And so here's what he asked in verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in the knowledge and all discernment. Okay. Could it be that their love was waning? That you may approve the things that are excellent. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Could it be that they were beginning to slip back and not focus on the things that were excellent and praiseworthy? Because Paul talks about that later on in the gospel. He says in verse number, uh, chapter 4, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, pure, lovely, whatever a good report, if there's any virtue, there's anything praiseworthy, meditate, think, focus, abide on those things. He ends the letter trying to get their mind focused on the things in the gospel. And in the beginning of the letter, he prays that they may approve or they may approve and confirm by testing in their own life the things that are excellent. So why would you include that? I mean, this is just not random stuff Paul is writing. There's a reason behind this. Could it be that the church is becoming lukewarm like churches are today? Could it be that the Holy Spirit serving him with a freshness and a vibrancy is, is not as important to them then as it, is, or as it was earlier? Because he then says, verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus, to the glory and praise of our God. Well, I know Paul, but Everything was going fine. We lived in our little holy huddles. I mean, we homeschool our kids. We only watched pure flicks. We never went to the movies. We, um, we only listened to Christian music. We, we, went to only, we only had Christian books. I mean, we lived in our little bubbles, and everything was fine. And then all of a sudden, this big bad world came in and started pressing upon us, and now you're in jail, and I'm deathly afraid if I get too vocal or share my faith with somebody else that, that they're going to take me away, and, and I'm not going to be able to live in my just comfort zone anymore. Well, Paul says, well, let me tell you, from God's perspective, the benefits of what's happened because of my imprisonment. That you can't think about life on this earth, but maybe you need to look outward a little bit. Verse 12, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And there's almost this feeling of really, it actually turned out to be okay. How? 
so that it has become evident to the whole palace guards and to the rest that my chains are in Christ. So if, if I suffer persecution, then it's okay if you suffer persecution, but if you're going to suffer persecution, you're going to have to live godly in Christ to do that, and it may be It may be that the church was struggling with that, like our church is struggling today. Why? Verse 14. And most, not all, but most, here's a division, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Most. Well, what about the rest of them? It was probably the opposite. They're not bold and they don't want you speaking the word. And the fact that you're speaking the word without fear brings light on us, so it would make us feel better if you would just be quiet. Some indeed preach from, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, uh, not sincerely uh, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So what then? What should I do? I praise the Lord for the fact that I don't care who he uses, even Balaam's donkey. The reality is that the gospel is being preached. What then? That only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. So why is he writing this letter to them? Were they, were they the same way? Were some not interested in moving beyond and being totally Christ-centered? Were most kind of okay with that, but not? Was there a faction between those who wanted to and, and those who didn't? Are, are they contending to each other for, for each other as one man for the faith? Is there a lack of love that's taking place? Because your fervency for Jesus is going to cost me my job. So would you be less fervent for him and let me drag you down to where I am rather than increase my fervency to be like you? Verse 19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the supply of the abundance of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, even in jail, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Can you say that today? I don't care what happens. I want Christ to be magnified in my body. I don't care if it costs me everything I own. I don't care if it costs me my standing in the community. I don't care if it means I go to prison. It's Jesus first and Jesus only. Or do we just let Jesus season areas of our life that we hold on to tightly? Well, Paul, how can you have that kind of attitude? It's really simple. Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Really? Yes, because this world is just passing away, all the trinkets and toys, and, and I, waiting for me is the glory of the Lord. It's, it's my reward. It's finishing well. It's spending time with him. Why would I want to spend another moment on this earth unless 
It was for fruitful service, serving him by blessing others and being about others and being about him. What a waste of time it would be to be, me to be on this earth and be focused on building my own kingdoms when it's all about him and everything that I have is going to be given to somebody else anyway. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. But if I live in the flesh, that will mean fruit from my labor Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. For you. It's like Paul is saying, I will sacrifice being with the Lord today only because I can be a blessing to you. Not a blessing to me, not increasing my wealth, not having more fun stuff on this earth, but to be a blessing to you. I'm being confident of this. I know that I shall remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy in the faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Now watch this. Why would he put this next statement in here? I'm coming to you again. I'm praying that I will see you again. There will be this incredible fellowship when I get there again. Except you guys aren't acting like Christians. Except you guys are, are full of sin. Except you're watching stuff you shouldn't watch and carousing around and you're spending your life on things that don't matter. Therefore, like a parent chastising his child, he says this, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Why? So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, no division, with one mind, no division, striving together, no division for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. Because if you aren't terrified by your adversaries, to them it's proof of perdition or it's proof of their destruction. You got nothing on me. I'm a child of the king. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can take this body and you can throw it in prison and I will laugh at you all the way to heaven. I remember the story many years ago I heard as a young person in the faith about uh, J.R. Rice, who's an old fundamental preacher. And a uh, man who swore he was going to kill him, middle of a church service. Man came down the, the aisle, pulled a gun out, and the revolver stuck it right up in uh, J.R. Um, Rice's face. And I remember him looking at him, and he walked down to the, the, from the pulpit down to the bottom where the man was, and he said, Son, you can't threaten me with heaven. You can't. Not be terrified by your adversaries who really can do nothing to you unless God allows it. And if you're not terrified, to them it's proof of their destruction. But to you, it's proof of your salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted, watch this carefully, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, oh, that's my best life now, but to also suffer for his namesakes. In what way, Paul? Having the same conflict in which you saw in me, and now here is in me. 
Therefore, understanding that, and this must be what's going on in the church right now. They're struggling with living in the world like we are. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort in love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Again, we see through this whole first chapter, it appears there's division taking place. You need to stand in one spirit together, one accord, be like-minded. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So how do we do that? Then you quit doing what you're doing right now. Well, what is that, Church of Philippi? Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, which means there are things being done by that, most likely. But in the lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. When a statement is made like this in a letter, if I was writing something to my kids, and my kids were loving each other, and they were of one spirit and one accord, and they, they were in perfect unity with each other, and they always looked out for someone else more than themselves. No, after you. No, you first, please. You would never say a statement like this. Never. It's only correcting an abuse that prompts a statement like this. So this church may be struggling just like we are. So what does Paul do? He tells them to to quit acting that way, and then exalts before them the greatest picture of humility ever. That this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming the likeness of man. And being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and Father. That should settle it, guys, but it doesn't. That's like a sermon that you preach bunch of people that are at odds with each other and you preach a sermon about how Christ was unified and they all nod their heads and they go back out and bicker again. It's a yielding of ourself to him. And one of the reasons why this letter was written and these statements were made, you can begin to discover as you'll just ask questions about the text. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and do for his good pleasure. I don't want to do that. I just, I, I don't want, can, just, can we stop? Your sermons make me feel sad. They make me feel like I'm, I'm not doing enough. I feel guilty when I'm too busy planning my big vacations and, and building my bigger houses and, and, and putting other people down. Verse 14, do all things without complaining or disputing. Why? That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The reason why he says this is probably because they were struggling with that. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. 
I have sacrificed my life for you. I am in prison because of you. I've been beaten with rods when I first built this church. And you guys aren't even following through with it. I don't want to end my life, Paul says, thinking that I have run in vain. And then Paul begins to look at his own mortality. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice of service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And for the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Then he starts talking about Timothy and uh, Prepatitis that he is going to be sending to them and was sent to them to kind of... Um, to kind of find out how they're doing, and the rest of this chapter kind of deals with that issue. It's kind of a personal note. Chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of of the mutilation, those that make circumcision a big deal. For we are the circumcision, we who worship God in the spirit, rejoice, rejoice in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. And then Paul says, if anyone's going to have confidence in the flesh, it should be me. And if I don't, then neither should you. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Can anybody say they did that? Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, I am blameless. But all these things that puff me up and make me something, I have counted as loss for Christ. Indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him. That's all I want to do, is I want to know him. That's Gnosko. It's 109.7. I want to know him by experience. And the power, the dudamas, miracle-working, Abling power of his resurrection and the fellowship, it's koinonia, partnership of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I mean, it's almost like it's almost like he's preaching a sermon to them. We need to address these issues here, and then all of a sudden I want to tell you who this Christ is. And if you guys think you're better than somebody else, listen, I'm better than anybody here as far as keeping the law, and I've surrendered it all and lost it all for the sake of Christ. Well, I'm special. I'm elite. I, I make more money. I have a bigger house. I'm, I have a better education. Nobody cares in the kingdom. Nobody. Because we're all, we're all hungry people telling other starving people where we found bread. Not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Jesus Christ has laid hold for me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I have not arrived. But one thing I do, I stay focused on the race, 
forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And if I'm pressing forward and putting him first, you, my beloved brethren in the church of Philippi, should do the same thing. I know it's not for everybody. Verse 15, therefore let us, and how are we going to define us? Well, as many as are mature have this mind. I know those that aren't mature won't. I know that those that are carnal won't. But those that are mature, those that are the leaders, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be again of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. People in the church, people in the community who claim to be believers who are enemy of the cross of Christ, whose end is their destruction whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. But we don't do that because our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. Well, how bad is it in the church of Philippi? Well, no worse than it is in the church everywhere, but there are still factions. Verse 4, therefore my belo- or chapter 4, therefore my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I employ Eudema and Suduke to be of the same mind in the Lord. Can you imagine being listed in Scripture as somebody who Paul says, you guys can't get along? I just, I I implore Eunice over here and Sally, could you get along? I mean, come on, you guys are causing the problems. Maybe you're the ones that the factions have, have broken up. Maybe you're the ones that are saying, you know what, we don't want to have the same mind of Christ because I'm going to lose my business, lose my shop. I'm going to lose my home. Persecution's going to come. I'm not going to be able to do the things that I want to do. I don't want to be like Paul. I don't want to follow his examples. And I urge you also, true companions, to help these women women who labor with me in the gospel and with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Help them. And when you do, I feel this guttural response coming up that says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all because the Lord is at hand. If the Lord is at hand, and the Lord is coming, and the Lord is here, then be anxious for nothing. See where it falls? Be anxious for nothing. Over the years, I've counseled hundreds of people who struggle with their faith, and I'm telling you, without exception, 
The reason why we struggle with our faith and we worry and we get anxious is because our God is too small. It's not our problem is too big. It's our God is too small. We've got these ladies that are maybe causing factions in the church here. We've got, we've got uh, Nero as emperor. We've got persecution that's taking place. I'm writing you from prison. I'm explaining to you that we're we're praised, we're, we're to be praised because we suffer with the Lord. He ordained that life to us, and it's okay to be humble and nothing in this world because that's exactly what Christ was, that we have to be about him always. Because the Lord is near, the Lord is at hand, the Lord is eminent. So therefore be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God will surpass all understanding, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So you're sitting in the church. You know the situation going on in your congregation, possibly some of the stuff that prompted this letter that we just looked at. You know that you used to be on fire for Jesus, but you're less you know that the leadership of the church that used to be on fire for Jesus is obviously less. You know that some, maybe most of the people are, are being more bold because of Paul's imprisonment, but the rest of them that aren't listed are obviously not being more bold, which means they're being less bold, which means they're living in fear and probably trying to keep you from being so bold. You know, there's obviously divisions and factions going on in the church because over and over again, he says, be of one mind, one accord, stand together as one man in the faith, had the same mind as, as I do, follow my example, and they're not. Sounds like the church today, does it not? We've got this terrible situation going on. We've got you know, rioting going on in various cities. We've got, you know, the, the government that you can't trust anymore. We've got this one political faction and this other political faction that are just, they don't even, they don't even, they're like reading from different pages. And then we thought things would change when all of a sudden we had a Republican Congress and a Republican president, but abortion on the ban is still like it is right, and nothing seems to change. We were worked really hard to get conservative judges on the Supreme Court, and then all of a sudden, over the last six months, everything flips and switches. What's going on here? We have wars and rumors of wars. We have this coronavirus that shuts down the economy. We have pestilence and these locust swarms that are wiping out most of a lot of Africa right now moving up into the Middle East and probably into Europe. And, and it's just crazy what's going on. Can't trust anybody. Have to wear masks everywhere we go. So you can't even converse with people much anymore. Why is all this happening? Could make you fearful about everything. I don't want to go out. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to see my family and friends. I'm afraid I'm going to give you the coronavirus. I'm, a, I'm afraid something's going to happen. They're going to have maybe some mandate of a vaccine. And if I don't get the vaccine, then, then I don't have my little health passport card. And if I don't have my health passport card, I can't buy or sell. But that's okay. I'll just buy it from you with cash. But, oh, we're moving into a digital system right now. We're having a coin shortage. All this stuff just seems to, to cascade like birth pains and roll on us. And the last thing you need to be is fearful. Fearful. I know, but 
You know, I'm 31 years old and, and I don't want Jesus to come right now. I, I want to live my life and, and have him come when I'm 75 years old so I can raise my kids and enjoy all the things I've always wanted to do. Your God is too small. As wonderful as that is, as incredible as that is, do you think that's better than heaven? The God is too small. And when we realize the worst thing that can happen to us is we're ushered into the presence of the Lord or we rejoice like the early church did to be counted worthy to suffer shame and persecution and degradation like Jesus did, then we don't have the view of him that the scripture wants us to have. Well, what's the silver lining? It's really simple. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. And if the Lord is at hand, none of this stuff matters. You better watch your conduct, and you better conduct yourself in a way that that's, lines up with Scripture, is what the Bible says, because the Lord is at hand. You two women, you need to get along because the Lord is at hand. Church doesn't need to be divided up. We don't need to be involved in sin, just satisfying our own narcissistic impulses, because the Lord is at hand. We should never worry about anything. Because the Lord is at hand. So you're sitting there. You're thinking about your job, thinking about your house, thinking about your future, thinking about whether you're, gonna get, you're ever going to get married, thinking about what's going to happen to this relationship or what's going to happen to that relationship or your job or whatever. And, and then all of a sudden you're just arrested to the fact, yes, the Lord's at hand. The Lord is imminent. The Lord is present. The Lord is here. So what should I do? Don't worry about nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Nothing. Well, that's easier said than done. My mind constantly just, just vibrates with worry and doubt and fear. What if this happens? Or what if that happens? Oh, this could happen and this could happen. What's going to happen to my kids and my family and my wife and my job and our world? Oh, I just, I'm worried, I'm worried, I'm worried, I'm worried. Why do you change that? In everything, and all those what-ifs, in everything, by prayer and supplication, acknowledging God's sovereignty with thanksgiving. Let your request be known unto God. Okay, I don't know how this is going to work out. I get worried about my kids and my grandkids, and I, and I worry about the economy, and I worry about this. Am I going to be able to do all the things that I want to do? But God, it's not really about me, is it? It's not about what I want to do. My life should be surrendered to you, so it's really what you want to do. If I lay myself down as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him, then I'll know exactly what your will is, because I won't be conformed to the image of this world anymore. And so, Lord, I, I don't want to worry about those things. I want to pray about them. I want to ask you about them, prayer and supplication. I want to thank you that you hear my prayers, and I want to thank you that you're going to answer my prayers, even if your answer is no, or not yet, or the one I hate the worst, wait. And what happens? If you do that, he gives you something. Remember when you got saved? Remember when all of a sudden the light just opened up for you and the Holy Spirit came to live within you and this regeneration took place and you knew that you were saved 
And the very next day you opened up the Bible and you didn't even know where to read. I'll just go in this red print here. Somebody told me to read the book of John, so I'll just open up the book of John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. In the beginning was the Word. What? Who's the Word? What's the Word? I mean, I don't understand what any of this means. And then you got saved. And then all of a sudden it became life to you. It became breath to you. It was like, wow, I just... This is his parables and the things that he said about sowing and reaping. You saw what they meant, and, and it became life to you, and you, you couldn't wait to share it with other people. Do you remember that? Somehow, something was given to you. The Bible says that the God, cross of Christ is foolishness. It's moronic to those people who are lost. But to those people who have a saving knowledge of him, it is life and breath and power. And all of a sudden that happened to you. It was something that was given to you, and you reap the benefits from that even today. Oh, his word. Same thing will be given to you if you are anxious for nothing and lay those problems at the feet of Jesus and thank him for taking them and thank him for whatever answer he gives And that's in verse 7. And I'll just close here. And the peace of God, the peace of God, which I don't understand. I don't don't know how that works. it's It's like I gave him my problems, and I still have my problems, but he gave me his peace, the peace of God. He gave me his peace, and now my problems don't even seem like problems anymore. But your situation hasn't changed. But I've changed. And because I've changed, I don't care. God is God. My God is big and strong and mighty, and he's not small and in a box anymore that I have to manipulate and control. The peace of mind, which surpasses all understanding, will guard like a sentry. Guard your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. So how does he guard that? That's really simple. He does his part, you do your part. His part is simply this, that he will supernaturally keep you focused on him. And your part, you know, I hate to use this example because it's something I struggle with my whole life. Your part is this. You want to lose weight? Quit eating. Really simple. You diet and you lose some weight, and then you blow it by eating again. What you need to do is stay focused on the diet and quit eating. So your job, if you've got this peace of God that passes under all understanding, quit going back to worry. Quit fretting over things you've already laid at his feet. I know, but they're just in my mind. They just seem kind of pop up, and I just kind of dwell on those things. Then control your thoughts. Well, how do I do that? Look what he says. Whatever things are true. Whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, not just dwell or think, but meditate on these things. Fill your mind with the things of God and there's no room for the things of Steve. Make sense? When, when you take a passage like Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and you spend a little extra time, and I'm not saying you have to do this with every passage, you spend a little extra time going through and trying to look at the context and ask the questions, why? 
Why did Paul include that here? You know, uh, when Karen and I were dating, we, um, we wrote letters. We didn't, have, uh, we didn't have email back then. We wrote letters, and they were sent by carrier pigeons. We've been <laughs> married a long time. But we wrote letters, and, um, you know, you always waited for the letter that would come. And, and uh, Karen's letters were like seven or eight pages long, done with this beautiful script handwriting and all that kind of stuff. And my letters were short and to the point and cryptic, and I typed a lot of them out. Because my handwriting, the only person that has worse handwriting is you. Okay, yeah, Scott. Scott. Scott can't even read his name. Oh, that's mine. Anyway, but, but, you know, and we saved all those letters. And if you go back and read those letters, there are certain things that are mentioned in those letters that affected the times in which we lived. Like Karen may be really struggling with something about what she should do. And in my letters, I'd be encouraging her about that. And then she would be encouraging me about some things in my own life or telling me things I shouldn't be doing or stuff of that nature. And you can read those letters. And you can kind of almost go back after you've lived through it, go back and almost picture in your mind that scene or those events that were talked about in those letters. Make sense? Works exactly the same way with Paul's letters to these churches. I want to know what it must have been like to feel what they were feeling, to be sitting and listening to this letter being read, realizing that that letter was read, that letter was written from Paul in prison to us, to this congregation. And because it's inspired scripture and God breathed, it's written to us today. But what was he struggling with? What were they struggling with? And, and you find out that the context of what the church in Philippi, pretty much just like the church that we have today. And Paul was encouraging them to worry about nothing, same stuff we worry about today, because God is at hand. And what we have to do to maintain that victory is focus on the things that are pure and holy and true and just and praiseworthy. And by the way, I can't think of anything more pure and holy and true and praiseworthy than the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you? and put him in the center of everything. And you'll be surprised how this peace comes that you're not going to understand and just changes everything. Amen? Let me pray.